0: All right.
1: Um well, um it's it's a great honor and a delight to uh, welcome Laius Pustai for, uh to to uh, Dartmouth. Um he's the um, chief um, uh, of uh, medical breast oncology at uh, Yale and um we were uh of great soccer buddies in, uh, at M.D. Anderson before we came uh, here. Uh, his training uh, initially was in Hungary, uh, so he, um, sorry, let me look at the notes here, um, received his M.D. degree from Samuel Weiss uh, University of Medicine, and and then after that uh, he received a very prestigious uh, Uh, opportunity to uh, receive training at uh, Wadham College at the University of Oxford and uh, received a uh, Doctor of Philosophy there and went on to do a fellowship um, at Oxford. And then he uh, did residency uh, in internal medicine at the University of Rochester in in New York and after that was at MD Anderson. So uh, he's um, a, a very accomplished uh, physician and um, has um, been very well funded. Uh, he currently uh, a, has a leadership award from the Komen Foundation and is am- among the top uh, 1% of clinically uh, recognized uh, researchers uh, by Thomas Reuters, and um, it's, a, it's a really wonderful that you're here, so thank you for coming, uh, Laios, and um, thanks for presenting to us. Oh, sorry. I forgot something. Um, I have to make a few announcements. So um, uh, he has grant and research support uh, with uh, Merck, Genentech, uh, Seattle Genetics, um, AstraZeneca, Novartis, and is a consultant with uh, Merck, Celgene, and Novartis. um, that's uh, quite, uh, you know, so, very impressive.
0: Yes, you can interpret this both ways. You just undermine all our credentials. <laughs> be objective,
1: right? Well, I don't <laughs> see any Russians in this list, so I think we're good. <laughs> um, anyway, um, he, he, uh, Alan Hartford and cor- is and course director for the uh, CME activity reports uh, uh, that although there's relationships with industry, they've been resolved by uh, validating the content, and so CME... Uh, accreditation is approved. Uh, he does, Dr. Pustai does not intend to discuss unlabeled, off label use of FDA-approved products or non-FDA-approved investigational products, and he's not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity related to this activity. And uh, also, we want to welcome those who are joining us uh, re- remotely. So, again, thank you very much, Laios.
0: So thank you very much for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I would like to talk to you about our experience with trying to interpret the human genome in the whole exome sequencing space primarily. So I love this cartoon, because I think it actually captures some, some really fundamental truths about this field. So this little angel says that, God, the human genome has been unraveled. And then God says, well, God, hackers, we need to change the password. And I think he succeeded. So. So, Chris has just reviewed this statement. So, we do a lot of clinical trial research, and all this clinical trial research is funded by the pharmaceutical companies. So, you are probably very familiar with this very simple and very elegant story of the HER2. So, HER2 is a gene that's amplified in about 20% of breast cancers, it actually defines the disease. And if you introduce an, uh, an extra HER2 gene or a couple of extra copies into a normal cell, it goes haywire. It actually amplifies the signaling through the ERK, um, PS3 kinase ERK pathway, and transforms cells. So because the gene amplification leads to a high level of protein expression, there is a very simple and straightforward assay to identify these patients. And, and this brown staining here defines the population, that would be an excellent candidate for a drug. And there is a drug called Herceptin, which is a monocle antibody against HER2, and it works. So the question is this, really. Is this a universal phenomenon, and there are a lot of gold nuggets like this on the human genome, or is it more like a lucky strike or a lucky finding? So I would like to <laughs> talk about three projects that, that um, we have been doing in the past few years, can we refine predictors to sensitivity to trastuzumab, the anti-HER2 antibody? So even though the story is very nice and elegant, the real truth is that only about 20-25% of patients actually respond to Herceptin alone. So we don't actually use the drug alone. We usually use it together with another agent like chemotherapy or endocrine therapy, and it, it augments the efficacy of these other drugs. So in the same way, can we actually find genomic abnormalities that would identify another type of breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer, that's highly sensitive to to a a standard care chemotherapy regimen versus those who don't? Is there something in the genome, in the DNA, that actually defines this that could be used as a predictor? Or maybe you could be used to learn and define new drugs to overcome the resistance. And finally, um, it's, it's really interesting now because of the new treatment modality that has emerged Uh, immunotherapy to to understand why some cancers carry a lot of immune cells and others don't. Is there something in that genome that actually determines that? So, the, the first sort of clinical problem that we actually wanted to address is this issue about the Herceptin or Her2 sensitivity. So we applied whole exome sequencing, along with a bunch of other technologies that are listed down here, to samples from a clinical trial. And the clinical trial is illustrated on this slide. It's called NeoAlto. so a woman with newly diagnosed breast cancer um, have a research biopsy, and then subsequently get randomized into one of these three treatment arms, the Herceptin, which is the antibody plus a chemotherapy drug, um, Lapatinib, which is a kinase inhibitor, plus the chemotherapy drug, go the two together. So they get this treatment for 12 weeks, then they undergo surgery. And the primary outcomes that we were interested in to predict or find predictors for or molecular underpinnings is PCR or pathological complete response rate. That means that a fifth-size tumor or a one-centimeter tumor or a two-centimeter tumor goes to zero. So you completely eradicate the cancer from the breast. And that's good news overall because it's not just the surgery gets better or easier, but also it's a very good prognostic indicator. The patient will very likely won't have a recurrence. Um, <clears throat> It also corresponds, very obviously, a very highly chemotherapy-sensitive tumor. And the other group is all the rest, and they have a variable outcome. So we, we applied a whole series of different technologies, and the one that we actually led was this whole exome sequencing that I will show you. And many of these other platforms and results actually had been published. So the, whole, the RNA and the exome sequencing is the, the projects that we were involved with and wanted to see whether we can find some molecular underpinnings of these differences in response. So we, had, we received 208 baseline biopsy samples, and we have the residual disease, too, but, but the, the, what happened to the cancer genome during the treatments, I won't be able to show to you now because we are still analyzing the data. So I'll show you the baseline results. And this was led by, by a bioinformatician in, in my group, Wei Wei So these are just metrics of the sequencing. So we had about 150x mean coverage and a pretty good coverage of the, the whole exome. So we sorted the variance into high functional impact or not high functional impact. So high functional impact is a mutation that's predicted by a variety of algorithms to alter the functionality of the gene. And we used um, a predictor called CAD or SNP predict. And on average, about 34 uh, 34 such high functional impact mutations could be seen in any particular sample. And we asked three questions. So what are the gene level mutations that are associated with response? Are there any global metrics of the genome, like clonal heterogeneity or mutation load that would distinguish these two outcome groups? And finally, if there is any pathway-level difference in the mutation frequencies. And um, <clears throat> so lo and behold, we find something really interesting. We studied 30,000 genes, or so 20,000 genes, and there was no high-frequency recurrent mutation at the gene level that was differentially mutated by the response groups, except one that we already knew about for about 15, 20 years, P.I.C. kinase, and um, this little sort of insert shows you that if you had a P.I.C. kinase mutation, it was more common to have residual disease rather than the extremely good response, but it's a pretty, so it makes a nice publication, but it's a pretty modest clinical predictor, right, because the difference is significant, but it's not really very um, so the distinguishing: if you had a mutation, then you had a PCR rate of around um, 24%. If you didn't have that, even more sensitive, yes, 36%. So then we asked the question: any of the global metrics would predict? And again, the, the results are somewhat disappointing. So um, none of the overall mutation load metric or clonal heterogeneity predicted. The mean clonal heterogeneity was somewhat associated with with residual disease in you analyze the combined arms. So if you had residual disease, you, were, you had a little more heterogeneous tumor. And the heterogeneity was implied by using things like PyClone or Cyclone, these, these um, computational algorithms that make a prediction how many different clones exist in that tumor. So the most interesting finding, however, was at the pathway level. Um, and that really was very sort of striking in some ways. So here we collated about 700 or so biological pathways from Biocarta, the NCI pathway database. And of course, these pathways individually contain many overlapping genes. So we call the pathway mutated, at least one gene had a highly deleterious mutation in that pathway. And then with permutation testing to actually test the significance or actually qualify the p-values with the false discovery rate. And these are the the gene, and these are false discovery rates that you actually the adjusted p-values with a false discovery rate, and these are the three different treatment arms and the combined arm. So the most striking thing is that there is a whole lot of genes that are associated with residual disease. So if you have a dot here, that means that this pathway had a mutation more frequently if you had a residual disease than if you had the pathologic CR, and the actual shapes carries some information that's really interesting. So every circle implies a pathway that had PI3 kinase in it as a member. So you know that PI3 kinase participates in many different biological processes. It shows up in a whole bunch of different pathways. And every single pathway that was associated with, with a residual disease actually carried um, mutations uh, or, or included pathways which had the pi 3 kinase in it. However, if you remove the pi 3 kinase from this analysis, if you remove that gene from all the pathways in which it shows up, you still get the exact same result because it's not the pi 3 kinase that's mutated, it's something else in, in that pathway. And on the other hand, there was only one thing that kind of consistently showed up associated with a higher sensitivity to, to, to one drug, lapatinib And that was something that we didn't expect, and we still don't quite understand why. It's a raw, raw pathway-related genes. So this just shows you how this actually um, sort of translates into these differences in response. So this shows you the, the response rate, the pathological response rate by treatment arms and by the, the mutational status of the uh, the, uh, these two pathways. So, if you are a ps mutant, then it puts you into the low likelihood to have complete response to receptin. If you have a mutation in this, then it increases your likelihood to, to have a pathological complete response to the lapatinib drug. And um, so you can define groups that lapatinib works well. Why? Because the lapatinib alone <laughs> creates the same response rate as the lapotenib and trastuzumab together. And you can create a group where the trastuzumab is the better drug, because that's the one that, 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 that drives the pathological CR, and lapatinib doesn't contribute much, based, based on the, the combination of the mutation status of these two genes. And as I alluded to you, we are interested in this PCR, or pathological CR, because it really predicts very well-out survival, long-term survival, which is shown in these little inserts here. But that's what's really um, the main observation from from this uh, association that, if you look at the genes that are actually affected, they fall into this PS3 kinase network, of, <clears throat> but they don't actually affect the same gene. So the most commonly, each row here is a gene, and you probably can't really read what they are, but in <clears throat> each column is a patient. So the most commonly affected mutation is the Piastri kinase, but there is a whole lot of other mutations that occur in this pathway. And you carry them, you tend to be in this group, and that group has the residual disease. And the yellow group, I mean the, the blue group is the folks who actually had the complete response. But it's, all, it's really the, the way to uh, interpret this, at least to my mind, is that the dif- different genes are mutated in different patients, and which suggests that different cancers can develop resistance to the same drug through mutations in different genes in the same biological pathway. And it's very clear that it's not one gene that causes the, the resistance because we didn't find anything other than pi-3 kinase, and I showed you how lousy pi-3 kinase alone was. Like it's a 25% versus 35% response rate. <laughs> So so then we wonder if, actually, if you apply the same philosophy and the same analytical strategy to another clinical problem, this time another disease subtype, triple negative disease, ER, PR, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2, negative breast cancer, <coughs> receiving the same sort of um, <coughs> treatment strategy, neoadjuvant or preoperative chemotherapy with taxol, 5-FU, adriamycin, cyclophosphamide, a combination chemotherapy. That's the standard care. And you can, you can Analyze, in, this, in this particular study, we took two extreme groups. So we took patients who had a pathological cognitive response and folks who had extreme residual disease. They didn't respond or progressed. So these are the two extreme response groups. And I asked the same question. So can we find uh, <clears throat> anything in the, in the, at the single gene level or the pathway level or some exome-wide metrics like the mutation load, the genomic heterogeneity, and use the same platform as we did for the, the other um, new auto-study analysis. So, and again, we find the same somewhat disappointing, but in some ways very interesting result, that there was no gene associated the single gene level with, without, with response. So there was no gene, P53 or whatever gene is your favorite, that had a higher rate of mutation if you were highly sensitive versus not sensitive at all. Um, and it just shows you the mutation distributions for p53 and, um, and a few mutations that were significantly recurrent. What really drives this, it shouldn't be a surprise to any of you who follow, if, if you follow the cancer genome literature. So the main, main issue is that there are no high frequency recurrent events. So if there are no high frequency recurrent events, then you won't find anything that characterizes a group because there is nothing that characterizes the group. So when we did the pathway-level analysis, then something very similar came out, as we saw in the HER2-positive space. And if you look at the 740 biological pathways, you look at the pathway-level mutation differences, and you adjust for the multiplicity or qualify your p-values with, a, with the false discovery rate, then two pathways fell out that was differentially sort of mutated. This regulation of the androgen receptor activity and the FOX A1 transcription factor network. So remember these names are not as meaningful as they look like, because they are basically historical names and describe the context in which these genes were categorized into a pathway. So, but nevertheless, that's how we refer to them, and that's how they are annotated in the NCI pathway database or in Biocarta. And basically, that's the the relationship. So if you have pathological computer response, then you carry a whole bunch of different mutations in this pathway, and you never carry them if you have extensive residual disease, or very few patients actually carry this. So that's the mutation, that's the, the PCR by mutation status, and <clears throat> these two pathways together account for about 103 genes. So, um, that again suggests this sort of same principle behind drug resistance that it's different genes that are affected in different patients, but they converge in their effect at a phenotype level. So, just to complete this analysis, we also looked at the differences in the axon wide metrics. And then, of course, so you could ask that, yeah, that's very nice, but how do you validate this? So, for this paper, we actually have a validation cohort, which is an indirect validation. Because to validate this under the cleanest circumstances, it would be nice to have an independent data set from another group, which is the exact same thing, triple negative breast cancer, the same chemotherapy, some people having pathologic response, some residual disease, you run the whole exome sequencing, and you see whether you can reproduce this or not. Um, So we actually couldn't do that, because there is no such database out there. So we had to uh, do the validation in a more circumstantial way through the TCGA and other published data sets where you had at least survival information on these patients who received similar kind of chemotherapy, but not in the preoperative setting. So instead of using the the, the response, use survival as their validation endpoint. I think I may have a slide um, on the validation results, but it's described in this paper. So, the, but the next question that we asked is okay, so there are no really highly recurrent single genes that are mutated and separate the groups. There seem to be passive level differences, but how about these exome wide metrics of uh, mutation, uh, mutation burden? And again, we, we saw this that the, the higher the clonal mutation burden, then the higher the PCR rate. So. The way we define the chromal mutation burden is that you first, you, you, you calculate the mutation burden, which is just the, the number of the mutations that the, the sequences which have the appropriate depths, actually, that are covered by an appropriate depth, have in a particular tumor. And then you also calculate the chromality, and then you, and you calculate the, the ratio of the two. That's the chromal mutation burden. And and here we find that the higher the mutation burden in the clone, the higher the likelihood of the pathological CR. So one way to think about this, that the more disturbed the genome, the more vulnerable the cancer is to the chemotherapy. Um, And that just shows you the the correlation between this clonal mutation, the clonality, and matrix. This is one way to measure it. This is another way to measure it. So that's the, what I kind of alluded to a little bit, the validation of this androgen receptor FOXA network in, in the TCGA data where we could use survival as the endpoint to validate. But the main point I wanted to show you that if you look at a TCGA triple negative cancer cohort uh, where we had this info, so 102 patients, again, you see two groups a group that has mutations in this AR FOXA network and cancers that don't, right? So. These are the genes that are affected, and these are not the same genes as I showed you in this other slide. So this again goes along with this idea that it's not the gene that matters, but the pathway. So the overlap between the previous list and this list is 5%. However, if you compare this group with this group, this is the survival that you get. And that's for the choral burden. But that's pretty interesting, right? So you just group them, whether they carry a mutation or not, whether they are highly sensitive or not. And if they carry the mutation and they predict they are highly sensitive, all of these patients receive the similar type of chemotherapy that we used in the discoveries cohort, then they do really well. So that's the best validation that we could. And then, so I think this is pretty reminiscent of this famous opening line of the Anna Karinna by Leo Tolstoy. So that book opens with this line, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. so you could actually paraphrase this that each breast cancer may be resistant to therapy on its own way um. so if if that 's really kind of resembles the truth or or come closely, then then it implies a couple of things, right? That it's not gene, but pathway-level abnormalities, which are important, that the biological effects of diverse mutations converge at a phenotype level, and metrics of pathway disturbance may be better predictors than single genes. But it also actually implies another thing, that I haven't Point of this out, but most of the mutations that actually happen in the cancer genome are mutations that actually the person was born with. They are somatic events. So you could extend this whole reasoning that what constitutes a Christ cancer driver gene or a resistance network depends on what functional SNPs a person was born with. And what really sort of made us realize the importance of this is another project that a Yale a master student actually did. The <clears throat> get access, or, or um, got access to a beta test, a human kinome targeted sequencing kit. So that's a targeted sequencing kit which had the primers to, to, <coughs> to um, amplify out the kinome from the human genome. So we only sequenced the 518 or so human kinases. And we did this on about 100 breast cancer cases. And, and what we find was pretty dramatic. Most of the mutations, so we were looking for high-frequency kinases that we could target and develop a new drug against it, right? Now, that didn't work out like that. So we didn't find any highly recurrent mutation, other than what the TCGA already shown, which is kinase. But we discovered that there are a lot of high functional impact mutations which are actually not somatic, but germline. So you carry, and then we looked up the literature, and I don't know if you know this, but about 5% of the people have a PI3 kinase polymorphism that if you introduce into a normal fibroblast, it goes haywire, it starts to grow like crazy. So 5% of us carries a hyperactive form of PI3 kinase. But here's the kicker, that doesn't predispose you to cancer. So it's not a cancer-associated gene. And of course, we all carry a very large number of, of polymorphisms and a very large number of, of functional polymorphisms. I think my next slide may be this. Yeah. So that's a very old paper from the, the, the Human gen- thousand Genome uh, Project in 2010, and it's been repeatedly shown by, by everybody who repeated or, or extended these observations. I think it's worth considering for a second. So I highlighted for you the individual differences, so between two individuals. So by and large, there are around 10,000 SNPs that are different. But this bottom piece here is, so the, 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 the range is 48 to 80 uh, SNPs, which are actually, not SNPs, but are in the, the, the Mendelian, her, that's the human genome, you know, Mendelian, database, yeah, thank you. So these are really highly damaging mutations that can cause disease. But these folks are healthy individuals. And um, a lot of highly sensitive technology that came about since the past five, seven years showed us that many of us carry very large deletions and rearrangements in our genome. So, I mean, if you think that your neighbor is crazy, now you have proof. (laughs) <laughs> but but the more important thing is that these really account for our individual differences. And it's pretty, I think, naive to ignore them when you think about the cancer genome. So what you were born with in terms of abnormalities that you compensate for uh, are probably important to determine what is a cancer driver event. So we, we kind of formulated this hypothesis that somatic driver events are context-dependent And the functional germline SNPs may act as co-oncogenes or oncogenic modifiers. So that's not such a terrifically uh, novel idea, right? So people knew this from the Broca field. If you carry a BRCA mutation, that's by no means a 100% certainty for breast cancer, or ovarian cancer, nowhere close to it. In fact, depending on what family context this shows up, the risk could be anywhere from 40% to 80%. But it's never 100 anyway. And it could be as low as 40%. Um, But what we are trying to say here is that this extends to a much broader set of genes which have nothing to do with breast cancer risk or any kind of risk. What what they do to do is that what compensatory mechanism needs to be deactivated for a cell to become cancer cell. And then, so um, the next couple of slides are not published. And that's research that we are doing now so we actually were curious to see what's the distribution. If so this is true, then it still would remain true, though, that if you have a person who has um, cancer, then probably these highly deleterious um, events in their germline, by and large, ought to be a little more common than people who don't carry that. Because having these things would predispose you as a population to to cancer, as opposed to folks who don't. And plus, there is a random event that ha- needs to happen. So in this Plot here we assigned CAD scores, which is um, like a weighted voting algorithm of many different functionality predictors for SNP, and this is the distribution of this CAD score in the um, TCGA data. Then we, we run it on the TCGA. So a CAD score of about greater than 20 um, corresponds to the like a 100 or one. So the top 1% most deleterious, most likely to be deleterious um, variants in, in the SNP space. And if you plot this CAT score distribution in the, in the TCGA versus the, the 1,000 human genome, then actually you see that as the CAT score gets higher and higher, there is an overrepresentation of these abnormalities in the TCGA data. That's not a proof, that's just an intriguing thing. Um, of course, it's not a proof because these are different populations, so we don't adjust for we count for the, the distribution of the race, for example, and things like that. But that's the kind of research that, that we do now. And there's just a bunch of random SNPs that, um, that, that are not ranked by, by this functionality. And these are SNPs in genes that are high functional impact SNPs in genes, which are cancer hallmarks genes. And again, that's the variant frequency of that SNP in the TCGA population versus the human, t- the dozen human genome. And it's, again, it's kind of intriguing thing, so we want to refine this a little bit. But again, what this suggests is that it's more common for people who have cancer and representing the TCGA to have high functional impact SNPs in genes that we know that contribute to, uh, that, that contribute to cancer in some ways. But the, the actual individual level um, associations are pretty weak. And that's why these things haven't really been discovered as cancer-causing genes. Um, because the SNPs and the, the, the their association with, with um, variants in the genome are, are pretty mild. But another thing that we actually wanted to look at is how, is there any, so the idea is that you have to have a complementary somatic event that somehow in a, disables the 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 compensatory pathways that keep your cell healthy despite running with a PIC 3 kinase that's five times as active as an, as, as an average PIC 3 kinase. So we looked for co-mutations or exclusivity in mutations, somatic mutations and SNPs in the TCGA data again. And this is a list of things which have met this FDR rate of 3%. So this particular somatic mutation happens to co-mutate with this SNP. Um, actually, show how this looks. Oh, no, I didn't. I took this out. But uh, so, <clears throat> so, so, what we actually try to do, we we try to validate this hypothesis in the laboratory, and it's pretty straightforward how you would do that, right? So you would want to take a cell, maybe a normal epithelial cell that doesn't carry the SNP, and then you use, um, you actually introduce this SNP, and then with the CRISPR method, and then you transfer this gene. And then you see how the second event altered, the, the consequence of this second event has been altered by the presence or absence of this polymorphism. So this is the kind of stuff that you try to do. It's a lot of work. So we want to be confident that we pick something that is real um, and hopefully comes from human data for this complementariness. And... Um, And then the the next piece around is: so if this is all really true, then we still ask this question, so what's wrong with a particular cancer? So in the tumor boards, right, in the molecular tumor boards, we we have all these data sets, usually not in a comprehensive setting, but but sometimes in some research patients in a pretty comprehensive setting. So you kind of do a biopsy, and we have patients who had all of these. We have gene expression profiling for them on RNA-sick. We have mutation profiling. And now from, from the, the, the RNA the whole exome sequencing, you actually can read out copy number changes, too. So you have all of these things. Two, three thousand genes have altered expression, five to hundred somatic mutations, a whole lot of copy number alterations, and that's the average copy number alteration in range that we knew for a long time from CGH data, plus these high functional limping things. So what does this add up to? So what's wrong with my cancer? Answer, an answer that if you really think about it, you can't really answer. So we tried to develop um, some kind of uh, a tool to really visualize the totality of these events, and we created this, this sort of tool, which is, which has been published, this, it's online. So the idea is that you, you load all of this data into this software tool, and it's giving you a visual interpretation of where the abnormalities are in the genome ontology network of gene. Hierarchies. So the genome ontology is. You, you probably are familiar with it. So it organizes the many of the, the known human genes into functional categories in a hierarchical way. So this is a, an opening picture of this um, particular software tool, and then you can click. Oh, and it shows you where the events happen. And the color coding means how many types of events are actually enriched in this particular Go anthology node. And the node, you could think of a gene ontology node is like a list of genes that carry a particular function. And it's hierarchical, so you can zoom in. So this is the, <clears throat> the relationship between them is defined by overlap between the, the various gene lists, because these, again, are overlapping categories. So you can click on, for example, this little node here, and then it shows you the gene ontology number. And then if you click on it, then it actually shows you the name. What's the gene ontology name of this hub? And, it, and you can pull up all the li- genes that belong under this gene ontology node, and it, it shows you from your own data that how the genes were affected, right? So this particular gene had an mRNA change, and it's normal, the CGH had a mutation in it, and and so forth. So it can show you where these genomic abnormalities are in the biological sort of process space. And the biological process space is defined by this gene ontology network. So if you run one case, one case looks like this. If you run another case, it looks like this. So it's clear that this person has a lot of damage or alterations in these biological functions. This other guy has it here and a little bit here. So if you create plots like this, then it's pretty easy to turn it into some kind of a heat map or a tile map. And, um, and you can get these categories of, you can categorize breast cancers based on, on this sort of um, visualization tool. So that's not a project that, that we are actually doing now and try to upgrade and make it a little bit more intuitive because, again, the names here are all fully non-intuitive. So the gene ontology terms are, are really crazy um, in terms of reflecting the biology. So we try to revamp this using the hallmarks of cancer pathways. Um, so I think the, the bottom line is that at least to my mind, what's really emerging from the, the human genome data is that complexity is the emerging rule for cancer biology rather than simple linear models. So this is the model how HER2 works. So it actually turns out to be that it doesn't work like this. In fact, probably most of the activity of receptin is immune mediated, at least half of it. And we know this and kind of we surprised that the kinase inhibitors don't work so well as the antibody. And now we know that because there was another dimension to it that we never quite understood which was the immune the immune dimension that the antibody sticking to this receptor activates the immune system. But anyway, so the the signaling pathway is far more complicated than this. And uh, it's more like this. So I I took this from a really old paper where we tried to identify a little bit along the same ways based on mRNA expression changes, mutations, copy number status, driver networks in triple negative cancer. And uh, it looks more like this. So the, the last topic that I wanted to cover is this question that why some cancers, breast cancers in particular, carry a lot of lymphocytes and others carry a few only. Um, that's interesting because, because of the emerging immunotherapy modality and also because the presence of lymphocytes on their own have predictive Uh, and and prognostic value. So if you have a lot of lymphocytes in the microenvironment of breast cancer, then you have a higher rate of this pathological CR that I've been talking about, and you also have a better prognosis, regardless whether you get any treatment at all, and with or without treatment, you have a better prognosis. So so this is a medical student. At Yale, medical students have to write a thesis. So he actually wrote his thesis on this project that why some breast cancers have more lymphocytes, and, and this was the, the starting hypothesis. We thought, let's in the literature, it's a fairly straightforward hypothesis for a medical student, right? A lot of mutations equals a lot of new antigens equals a lot of lymphocytes. So he set out to kind of prove this with what one of the other people suggested anyway. So and again, we examined total mutation load, new antigen load, chromo-heterogeneity, copy number variations, gene and pathway levels, somatic mutations, and SNPs, and correlated this with the immune gene expression signatures. So. Um, so this part of the equation is very true. We have a lot of mutations, there are a lot of neoantigens. So this is the, the mutated genes in a sample adjusted for the the, the length of the sequence that's covered. And that's the predicted neoantigen load by a computational algorithm. It's very highly correlated. In other words, it's so tightly correlated that you don't even need to consider this. You can't use the, the mutation. The, the, the mutation load as a proxy for the antigen load. But is this part of the equation also true? So that's what, that's what uh, Anton set out to study separately in the different breast cancer subtypes. Because I know, I hope that you all realize that there is no such thing as breast cancer, just like there is no such thing for any practical meaningful thing as leukemia. I mean, it would be crazy to study leukemia, right? You want to study acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoid leukemia or chronic myeloid leukemia or chronic lymphoid leukemia because studying them together would be really, really chaotic. So so that's the state of water <laughs> breast cancer, too. You don't want to study them together. You want to study them by, by subtype. Why? Because these different subtypes are really different diseases. So the first thing I want to show you, this is mutation count by the four major breast cancer subtypes. It's very clear that triple negative breast cancer has the highest average mutation count. antigen is the same thing because the two are highly correlated, but also <clears throat> the, it has the highest level of cytotoxic T cells. So if you study all breast cancers, what you will find? You will have a very tight correlation between cytotoxic T cells and this. Why? Because you pick up this group as one group. Um, But if you study them separately, do these two things relate to each other, like in triple NAD breast cancer, mutation count in cytotoxic T cells? Actually, don't. The relationship is the opposite. So I'm not sure that. I think the colors are faded. But basically, this is a correlation matrix. So these numbers are correlation coefficients between certain immune metagenes that you don't see here, but these are certain dif- gene expression signatures that define T cells, B cells, immune cells in general, and so forth. And, and these are the variables that we associated with them. Deletion load, amplification load, mutation load, and the antigen count. This meth core is a, is a mutation uh, based tumor heterogeneity score. So it's, it's a proxy for how heterogeneous the cancer is the clonal heterogeneity. So when you correlate this, you color-coded it, and actually the, it's a bit faded. So the blue is a negative correlation, and the brown is a positive correlation. So you can see that new antigen, very highly correlated mutation load, very deep brown, a pretty significant number, zero point something, 85 or 84, but these are all negative correlations here. So, the higher the tumor heterogeneity, the, f- the lower the lymphocyte infiltration, no matter what signature you pick. And that's pretty consistent across all the subtypes, but the most striking is in triple negative disease. Um, this part of the picture f- actually is dominated by faint uh, orange colors that you don't see, but you might see it here a little bit. So, this implies that that in ER-positive cancer, many of these metrics very weakly but positively correlate with immune, immune infiltration. But the clonal heterogeneity remains negatively correlated here, too. But here in this space, the typical negative space, most of these are are faint light blue negative associations. So just to organize this in a very sort of um, structured way, right? So we want to find somatic mutations. Are there somatic mutations that are associated with lower immune infiltration? in ER ER ER-positive disease, ER ER-negative disease, and then germline SNPs, copy number changes, copy number deletions, and past level mutations. The main thing that I want to uh, point out to you is these numbers here, 5.3, 4.1, 3.4, so that's the frequency with which a particular event that's more common if you have lower immune infiltration is seen. So the idea is that each of these variables alone account for a relatively small variation in the uh, um, driving immune infiltrations. And the more complicated way to show this is a principal component analysis, but it's more difficult to really interpret those results. But it gives you this flavor that that the individual driver events are again different from person to person, a little bit like the, in terms of what drives the immune presence, just like we saw with the response to the um, chemotherapy or the Herceptin. Um, Another thing, so this is molecular abnormalities that are associated with lower immune infiltration, and that's with higher immune infiltration. So this is pretty much empty, right? That's M, because most of the DNA level abnormalities are actually associated with the lack of immune cells, which is what I've shown here, that the, the association between these different immune signatures that represent each of the columns is a negative association, and it's a weak one with immune infiltration. So that's the summary result of all of these, that this particular line here, is an LCK methogen expression value. So it goes from white, complete absence, to a little bit of blue and becoming dark blue. That means here you have a lot of LCK methogen. LCK is a T cell methogen sort of um, gene um, signature. And it's very tightly correlates with actual histological counts of lymphocytes. And again, the point is that this picture is more, co- this side of the Plot is more colorful than this side, right? There are more, more color dots here, implicating that there are more changes in all of these spaces the SNP pace, the copy number change space, than when you have lower lymphocytes. So, actually, contrary to the hypothesis, the immune infiltration in breast cancer is not associated with high, free, high, high frequency recurrent mutations in copy number variations or SNPs, but in the broad spectrum of gene and pathway level alterations that each affect a few patients. And that's what you actually see here. So so I alluded to this that we are interested in the immune signatures for two reasons. Because of the therapeutic implications or hypothesis that you could throw up and because it's prognostic value. So you can actually assign triple-negative breast cancer into pretty good or bad prognosis purely based on the expression of immune, immune cells or genes expressed in immune cells. And this is how this actually looks in the TCGA data. So we use this particular signature because we worked with it and developed it many years ago. It's a ratio of MHC2 uh, genes and eight and VGF, which are inflammatory markers, and, and it's the ratio that, that is better than either one of them alone. So if you... <coughs> If you uh, categorize as good prognosis, you do really well. If you are categorized as bad prognosis, you really do really badly. How these thresholds were, were uh, set, it's really applied this from a previous paper that I think I, I may reference on the next slide. So if you compare these two groups, what do you get? So you can already probably predict what you get, right? So if you have a high immune presence, then, then you're going to see this sort of inverse relationship. So now this is, again, the, the T cell... Um, expression score, and that's this math score, the heterogeneity, the higher, it's a negative association, right? And it shows the means between the good and bad prognosis groups. So that's the mean <coughs> um, score for the math. The clonal heterogeneity is higher if you are in the poor prognosis group than in the low prognosis, the good <coughs> than in the other category. And that's true for somatic copy number changes. So if you have a, a a poor prognosis system where you have more of these somatic copy, num- copy number changes, but also you have fewer T cells. And that, so the way we interpret this, right, so just to sum this up, so this is completely the opposite than what this hypothesis was at the beginning. Right? So we kind of set out that more mutations, more new antigens, more lymphocytes. That's true, more mutations, more new antigens, but you actually have less lymphocytes. So the more abnormal the cancer genome is, the fewer lymphocytes you actually have in that breast cancer genome. What do you think? Why? So we don't know for sure. But this is our explanation, right? So that what we are witnessing is really immune sculpting of the triple-negative breast cancer genome. So we introduced a time variable. So it could very well be true. But if you have a lot of new antigens, you draw in the immune system. But what does the immune system do? starts to eliminate the clones, and then, depending on what stage you capture this cancer, you actually could you could capture that stage when there are a lot fewer clones because of the presence of the immune system than in cancers that already escape the immune system, and because they escape, they have few immune system, few immune cells right that 's the escape means in, and therefore they blossom into a chromo heterogeneity so that 's how we kind of interpret these results that you can have a A lack of immune response from the beginning, and you have a very diverse, heterogeneous tumor population. So the colors, these are cancer cells, and these colors of the the shapes and these nuclei show the heterogeneity. Or you could have a really highly immunogenic cancer, and you might just eliminate it, kept it control for a long time. Remember, some of you are in the breast cancer field. are Probably aware of this uh, overdiagnosis story with mammograms. So it's very, very clear now that at least ten maybe to 30% of women who are diagnosed with genuine breast cancer, that's bona fide, invasive breast cancer, would have never died of their breast cancer. We know this from population screening data sets. So how comes? And it's probably because really, indeed, they either regress or are controlled by the immune system forever, and the person dies from another reason. So that's probably... It's a phenomenon. It only can be conjectured or, or, or postulated rather than studied, right? Because you have to have something to study. You can't have something studied that's eliminated already. But then I think that's where we diagnose breast cancers. So when there is a quasi-equilibrium between the tumor cells fighting for survival and the immune system trying to put a, a lid on it, and um, the more successful the immune system, the simpler the genome is because you basically trim, you call, the coronary, and then when a few clones emerge, then they escape and they blossom into this highly heterogeneous cancers that, that we actually observe among the low tumor, inf- the, the cancers that carry low tumor infidel lymphocytes. It also explains the prognosis, right, to some extent. So if you are in this group here, where you struggle for upper hand, by removing the tumor with surgery, it's probably helpful, right, because you kind of eliminated 99% of the army. So the only thing to struggle with is the, is the, the micrometastary disease. And uh, if you have very few tumor lymphocytes, your prognosis is not so good. But it also um, sort of um, leads to this very directly testable hypothesis, right, that, that this group of cancers where the equilibrium is still undecided or ooh, the final balance is undecided are the group of cancers where you could actually help with immunotherapy. So we have two immunotherapy studies at Yale one in the adjuvant setting and one in the new adjuvant setting. The new adjuvant is the preoperative setting, so you like to see that throwing in PD-Ligen-1 inhibitors, we can actually help the immune system here and, and increase the pathological CR rate by eliminating even more clones. So the, <clears throat> the conclusion that I like to draw is that the her story is more of an animal than a rule. In fact, if you really think about this, there are only a handful of of similar stories in the cancer therapeutic literature, despite about 30 years of studying the uh, maybe 25 years or 20 years of <clears throat> studying signaling and, and um, the cancer genome. So these simple genomic stories are probably rare, and even they're probably incorrect, even in their simplistic form. So focusing on a single targetable finding or a single gene biomarker is practical, but it's a high risk for failure strategy. And it's no wonder that really there are not that many Uh, So single gene markers of clinical use in any cancer. And frequently, recurrent mutations are rare in solitomus, and each cancer harbors a large number of abnormalities in individual combinations, which then suggest that many different types of genomic alterations converge at a pathway and phenotype level. And then these observations also suggest that multiple somatic and germline events together conspire to destabilize key regulatory pathways that eventually lead to cancer and affect its response to therapies. But you may think that this is self-obvious, but it's not. Actually, the very way we define somatic mutations is such that we completely discard the germline events. That's the way you define a cancer mutation by C D and, um, and a bunch of different colors that you really weed out the uh, the high functional impact germline events. That's my lab, and uh, I'm very impressed with you. You know, the last time I gave this talk, this is what happened to the audience. So thank you for staying up. Right. have some time for questions? If you I have a question, Ryan. So what happens
1: like with DCIS? Does it have you know, a
0: high mutational version because some of those go away or you know, they're projection? Yeah, so B C S is fascinating. So it's a- precancerous lesion, or, or it's really not an invasive cancer, a ductal carcinoma in situ. And I haven't studied DCIS ever in my my career, but I, what I gather from the literature is that DCIS is puzzling because it carries all, all the hallmarks of cancer. So it carries the same genomic complexity, it carries p fifty three mutations. In fact, the HER2 amplification is far more common in, in, in uh, DCIS than it is in in. Um, Uh, invasive cancer, so it's more than 20%. Um, So it's very, very close in all the abnormalities that we can measure with regards to the hallmarks of cancer to be invasive, yet it's not invasive. So it may be one step away, and that step is a different step in every individual, but so far it has been very, very difficult to find this distinction between invasive, genuinely life-threatening breast cancer and DCIS.
1: Uh, your idea that uh, somatic mutations can happen in many genes, but what's in common is they're often in shared pathways.
0: Does that mean you should be able to see uh, signatures at the level of gene expression much more easily than vibrating uh, with somatic intuition? Yeah, so I guess these mutations ultimately ought to translate into some kind of an expression level impact and a protein level impact, right? Otherwise. How would it work? Yeah. But it may be easier, actually, to see this in the DNA space, because the expression, the expression of any one gene is regulated by so many different variables, and one of them is the mutation, or a mutation of a gene two steps up. But then there are two steps in between, and those steps could be modulated by other events. So I think, in, in theory, you are right.
1: In your first story, you focused on Herceptin or patent. but is there a signature for Taxane response?
0: Because it was patients are on Taxane as well? Yeah, so these are really not, so there is no signature. So my, my previous 15 years of my career, I spent on signature discovery in the microarray space, and nobody could ever find any signatures that really holds up in the clinical arena. So, well, we did a clinical trial, that we actually called a bunch of signatures for dasatinib sensitivity from Nature Medicine and Cell, and we invented our own, and it had that much predictive value in a clinical trial when we selected patients based on the presence of those signatures for dasatinib. Um, and by and large, these signatures, drug-specific signatures, never really held up in um, in clinical studies. So there is no gene expression signature per se, and. Um, what I was describing is like a mutation signature, but not in the way the geneticists think about it. So the mutation signatures—if you say that word to a genomic guy—they think about the the pattern of alterations in the nucleic acids. Um, but this is more like—but I understand what you say. So we could so use I that, that term. That signature yeah. In the same sense that you're using right. Right. So in that sense, we do describe a signature that affects a pathway. But it's really the point is that an alteration in the pathway. Is the signal? It's not. The, so the signature implies that something is fixed, like a gene expression signature. of The T cells is made up by seven cells, seven seven genes, and that's always the same seven genes, and that's the signature. But here the point is that a, a mutation in the ps 3 kinase network is it's the effect on the network or the, the, the total number of events in the network that counts, not what gene is affected. So you would need to sequence the entire 460 genes, and. Uh, and that's when you would actually be able to tell whether the pathway is affected or not. But there is, yeah, so it's been very, very difficult to define individual drug, drug sensitivity signatures in the gene expression space that really hold up in the clinic, and, and also the same stories emerging in the, in the DNA sequence alteration space.
1: So I think everyone believes you that pathways are the way to go, but there's, there's no trials that are there that address pathways
0: that are Yeah, so we actually will have a chance to really genuinely validate this PI3 kinase network row a pathway story, because actually there is a clinical trial that was exactly like the New Auto study. <clears throat> New Alto was run by a large... International Consortium. This other study was run by the NCI, and um, they have whole exome sequencing. So we want to try to pull the data. But it's a lot of bureaucratic work to get everybody approve it and sort of exchange it. But we actually will, we will have a, a complementary, completely clean data set to test this idea that these pathways are actually really are associated with, with this pathological response.
1: Chris. Olaparib is
0: targeting HR-defective
1: pathways. So yes,
0: there are drugs that are targeting pathway defects. Yeah, of course. Right. So, but that's also, I mean, I think if there is a chance for these genome-wide metrics um, to show their clinical value, it's that space, Olaparib. So far, so far, the only predictor for Olaparib is Broca mutation. And there's a bit of an activity in uh, bronchonormal ovarian cancer. And that group could actually be this HR deficient group. And you could define the HR deficiency based on scoring in the genome, or these various assays, or even a gene expression pattern. And that's uh, the most promising, sort of practical, useful signature for a drug. Yeah, you are right. But that's still the jury's still out on it. Yeah.
1: Well, if there's any more questions, uh, thank you very much. It's great. Thank,
0: you. thank you. Thank you for having me.